Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. Uh, for those of you that are visiting, uh, we are making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, which is really made up of three sections, chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7 of Matthew. And we are uh, in the third and final section of the greatest sermon ever preached by, by far, and that is uh, Matthew chapter 7. Tonight we're going to be in verses 7 through 11, and uh, as you can see, the title is Ask, Seek, and Knock. Now, I've been teaching through books of the Bible for a long time now, and whenever I teach, I always try not to look ahead. Uh, I try to stay in the moment, in the passage, and just go from week to week to week and try not to get too far ahead. But i got to admit that this one uh, I circled on the calendar about a year ago, and I could not wait to get to this one because this passage uh, is unimaginably wonderful. It is that good. It is unimaginably uh, wonderful, as we'll uh, see tonight. Now, we're going to be in verses 7 through 11, but I'm going to start by just reading the first two verses, and there's a reason for that. These are the words of Jesus, and he says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For, and that word for means because. Because everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be uh, open. Now, a few weeks ago, I guess about five, six weeks ago now, when we started chapter 7, I made a statement. And what I said was, is that Matthew 7, 1, which of course is, judge not that you be not judged. I said at the time that that is probably the most abused misinterpreted, misunderstood uh, scripture in all of the Bible. And I meant it at the time, but I've rethought that this week. Um, I've, uh, I realized that I need to clarify or qualify that statement a little bit because what I said was a little, uh, a little overreaching. What I should have said was that Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged, is the most abused scripture in the Bible by unbelievers. You remember what I said at the time that unbelievers may not know any other scripture in the Bible, but they know one of them. Judge not. And they use it anytime you're talking about sin or you're talking about a sinful lifestyle, they'll pull Matthew 7, 1. Didn't Jesus say you're not supposed to judge other people? So I I certainly believe it is the most abused scripture in the Bible by unbelievers. But listen, when it comes to verses in the Bible that are misinterpreted, misunderstood, misused by Christians, not unbelievers, but by people who profess to be Christians, I think the two verses that we just read are the clear winner or the loser, however you want to look at it, right? 
Those two verses that I just read are probably the most misinterpreted, misunderstood uh, verses by people who profess to be believers. Now listen, it hasn't always been that way. Literally for 1,900 years, it was extremely clear what those verses I, I just read to you, it was very clear what they meant. But starting in the early 1900s with a man uh, by the name of E.W. Kenyon, and you can go Google him and, and read about him, and then uh, his teachings got picked up by men like Kenneth Hagin, and then his teachings got picked up by men like Kenneth Copeland and, and others uh, of his like. Um, what happened was is they've, they've, there's a group of people out there we know them as prosperity teachers or word of faith teachers. And what they've done is they've taken these verses, completely taken them out of context, and made God, I think Brother Keith mentioned this on Sunday in his sermon, made him into some kind of genie who has to do our every whim. Some kind of Santa Claus that just gives us whatever we ask. Some kind of uh, slot machine that you just put your quarter of faith in there and, and out comes whatever you want. False teachers have taken these two verses out of context. And they've basically taught Christians for the last hundred years that you can just ask for anything you want in faith and God will give it to you. Ask anything that you want. Just do it in faith, and God will give it to you. Now, you can see why they come up with that if you take it out of context. So let's read those two verses again. Let's take them out of the context of where they are and just look at them by themselves and read it again and pay attention. Ask, and it what? Not maybe. It will be given to you. Seek, and it you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you for who? Not some. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks it will be open. Folks, does that sound like a guarantee? That's because it is a guarantee. That is absolutely ironclad proof guarantee. There, he is not mincing words there. He's not toying with us. He is absolutely saying, ask and it will be given to you because everyone who asks receives. That is an incredible guarantee promise. In fact, that promise has really become over the last century the entire basis or foundation of the prosperity gospel, word of faith teachings. But is that what it means? Does it really mean that we can just ask God for anything in faith and he's obligated to give it to us? Is it some kind of blank check that, that we get? Man, I, I need something. I, is, it a, is it a promise with no conditions whatsoever? If I ask God for a million dollars in faith, or if I ask God for a new car in faith, or if I ask God for complete healing in faith, is he obligated, because of those verses, is he obligated to give that to me? The answer, folks, is no, 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 he's not. And experience should teach every single one of that that's, that that's not what it means, right? Because there's not a person in this room who hasn't at some point in your life asked God for something in faith and you didn't get it. There's not a person here. 
And I won't ask you to raise your hand. I don't have to. But there's not one of us here who has an ask. So we, we understand it's not a blank check. We can't just ask God for anything. And, and, and just because we ask in faith, believing it, he's obligated to give. It doesn't mean that. And experience teaches us that. But, folks, we don't go by experience. We don't walk by what we can see. We walk by faith. We walk by what Scripture teaches us. So what we're going to find out tonight, that instead of those two promises making God into some kind of genie that you just rub the bottle and He gives you whatever you want, listen, what it means is way, way, way better than that. Way better than that. And now, now the way we're going to see that is we're going to take it, those two verses, and we're going to put them back in the Bible. Not going to take them out and look at them all by themselves. We're going to put them back right where they belong. And we're going to look at them in context. And we're going to look at them two ways. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at what comes immediately after those verses. Because Jesus is not done talking about asking and seeking. He's got some more to say. And when we look at what comes after those verses, what I'm going to show you is that it's not unconditional, that that promise comes with some conditions. And then what we're going to do is once we're done that, we're going to go back and look at what comes in front of those verses, and I'm going to show you what it really means. Okay, so here's the first thing we're going to do. And I encourage you, if you got your Bible or your device or whatever, and you can follow along with me and read what it says in context. Don't ever let people pull verses out of context. They can make it seem any, mean anything they want. Put it back where it belongs and read it in the flow of the sermon. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at what comes after verses 7 and 8. So we've already read those two verses. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open. For everyone who asks receives. The one who uh, seeks will uh, find. And the one to whom knocks it will be open. Now here's what comes after. Verses 9 and 10. Jesus said this, Or which one of you, he's still talking about the same thing, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Now, Jesus is expanding on the statement that he just made about asking and seeking and knocking. And the first thing he does is he gives us the analogy of an earthly father. Now, this can certainly be extrapolated to a mother. I mean, it, it, but he's just using the, the idea here of an earthly father. Now, here's what I want you and I to understand. As parents, how many of you here are parents? A bunch of you are parents. I've got, I've got kids. I'm a, I'm a parent. I'm an earthly father that he's talking about here. As parents, do we all understand that we got problems? Do you all get that? I may not see your problems, you may not see my problems, but folks, we got problems. We are sinful, fallen, hypocritical, selfish people. Would we all agree? We're not, we ain't perfect, we ain't even close to perfect. But even in that state, we love our children enough to give them good things, do we not? We're, we're, we're not, not, some of us aren't that nice of a people. But even in that state, we still know enough love our children enough to give them good gifts. Now, listen, I'm not going to pretend there's not such a thing as abusive fathers. Of course there are. And if you were brought up in an, with an abusive father, I'm sorry about that, but that's not the norm. Okay, that's abnormal. The normative 
the normal is that in most times and in most places, fathers want what, what, fathers want what's best for their children. Would we agree? That's what's normal. That's what Jesus is, is talking about. And even in our sin, we know enough that you don't give children everything they want, right? Do we, do we all agree on that? Now, the world's gone crazy. Now, we know the world out there has gone crazy, but normal people know you don't give a child everything they, they want, okay? They're not, they're not mature enough. Their minds aren't formed enough. They don't even know who they are. You've got to make those, you know, if, it, if they're hungry, you know, it's a pound of chocolate or a good well-rounded meal, either one of them will fill them up, so they're going for the chocolate, right? We, we have to make the decisions for them. That is our responsibility as mothers and fathers and, and grandparents, we have to do that. And here's the thing. Even with the best intentions, and I, can, I know this from experience. Listen, I, I, I was brought up right. I was raised as well as you could possibly raise. I had my two boys, and I made a lot of mistakes. I had the best intentions. I loved them with everything. But in the moment, we make the best decision that we can for our children. But we can't see the future. We, we, we're not omniscient like God. We, we're not all-knowing. I don't know what's coming. Listen, my, my boys now, I'm trying to remember, I think they're 27 and 35, and where they've gone and what they've become. Now, if I could go back, I'd do things different. There's some things I let them do I wouldn't let them do. Probably some things I didn't let them do that I would let them do. Sometimes I was too strict. Sometimes I was too lenient. We, we do the be- Are you with me? You do the best you can. You love them, and in the moment, you make the very best decision. But there's not a parent that doesn't sometimes look back and think, wow, I messed that up. That was, was not the best decision for that child. Now, here's the thing. As human beings, as human parents, we're always going to be limited in knowing what's truly best for our kids because we don't know them the way God knows them. We don't know the future the way God does. Now, from that analogy... Jesus draws out a truth, verse 11. He says, if you then who are evil. Now, notice he doesn't say, if we then being evil. He says, if you. He ain't evil. See, we may be born again, and we are new creations in Christ, but we live in a flesh with a sinful nature. We are so far from good when it comes comparison to him that he can literally look at us and say, if you then being evil, because we still have evil desires. We still live in, in all the mess that we carry with us. He said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more does your heavenly father Give good things to those who ask him. Now, here's the first thing we need to draw out of this. God ain't like us. God's not like us. He's not limited like us. God doesn't look back in 10 years and say, wow, I made a mistake on that. He never makes a mistake. He's infinitely strong, infinitely powerful, infinitely wise, infinitely loving, infinitely uh, uh, good. All of those things, right? But above all, God is omniscient, which is just a fancy word for all-knowing. You know, the Bible says that he knows the number of hairs on your head, right? Y'all know that scripture? Listen, I don't know if, you know, I was 
at the house today with my grandson. We've been watching him a little bit, and I was thinking about this, and I thought, you know, how long would it take me to count the hairs on his head? Would it, is that even possible? If I spent years with him, would I? Are you with me? I mean, it's, it's not that that piece of knowledge means anything specifically. What it's saying is that God knows you better than you can know yourself. He knows everything about you, from the hairs on your head to what you think in the deepest parts of your heart. And not only that, He knows your future. He knows where you're going. He knows the things you're going to encounter in three years, in 10 years, in 15 years, in 20 years. He knows exactly what's coming down the road. You see, He knows you and He knows our children in ways that an earthly father could never know them. Therefore, he, can, he and He alone can know what's truly good for you. Like I said, I've, some of us as parents, we think, well, this is the right thing. This is really good for my child. And then later on we realize I made a mistake. But God doesn't make, have to make those mistakes. Because he, he knows them. He knows their future. He knows what's truly good for them in ways an earthly father never could. And here is the invitation of this God. He says to you and me, ask me for good things, and they're yours. Ask me. He wants us to ask him. He's encouraging us to ask them. Just ask me for good things, and I promise you they'll be yours. I guarantee it. Now, as I said up front, that is an unimaginably wonderful promise right there. That I have a father who's all-knowing. I have a father who is all righteous and all good and all powerful. And he just told me that all I have to do is ask him for good things and he'll give them to me. It's guaranteed. That's incredibly wonderful. You see, this passage is teaching us that when we come to God and we ask for good things, he will not withhold them from us. He will, without a doubt, give them to us. But listen to me, folks. No matter how much you clamor for him, he ain't going to give you bad things. No matter how much you want him, he will not give you hurtful things. He will only give you good things. Are you with me? You come to him and say, God, I got to have this. I need this. Oh, this is, this is, and, and he's sitting there thinking, man, if I give him that, that's going to take him away from me and he'll hold it back from you because that's not what's good for you. He only gives you good things. Sometimes we, we, we're going through something that's unpleasant, and we say, take it away. Because we think, you've got to take this thing away, but God sees in ways that we can't. He says, no, if I give you that thing and leave it with you, that's going to keep you close to me. And that's going to get you to the end. See, He knows us in ways. He's only going to give us good things. So ask and you will receive does not mean ask and you're going to always receive exactly what you want in exactly the way you want in the exact time that you want it. That's not what it means at all. It doesn't say that in, the, in that passage and it doesn't mean that in that passage. That passage is very clear. Does everybody see that? It's conditional. Good things. Good things. So if you come to him, I don't care how much you, you ask. I don't care how much you believe it. If it's not good for you, he will not give it to you because he's a good father. He's a good, good father. So what exactly does it mean then? 
we, we saw that it's not unconditional. So what does it really mean? What are these good things that we are, need to ask for or that we can ask for? Well, to answer that question, we have to look at what comes before verses 7 and 8. Now, let me say this. We are uh, in verses 7 through 12 right here. We're going to cover 7 through 11 tonight. Next week, we'll cover verse 12. These verses are not the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We've still got a few verses left. In fact, verses 13 to 29, Jesus is going to talk about how difficult it is to get into the kingdom. That's what those verses are going to be about. So this is, these verses here, 7 through 12, are not the end of the sermon, but they are the end of Jesus' teaching on righteousness. Okay? You remember when we started this a year ago, we started out in the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are eight characteristics that every Christian should have. Anybody that's born again should have those eight characteristics in their life in some measure. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. I'm not saying that everybody has it in the same measure. You may be more merciful than me. You may hunger and thirst after righteousness more than I do. But we all should have some, we should have these characteristics to some extent in our life, to some measure in our life, if we are truly born again. And then you'll remember after the Beatitudes, Jesus gets to verse 20, and he makes the most shocking statement he could have made to the crowd. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not get into heaven. And that was shocking because everybody thought that there were, the scribes and the Pharisees were the epitome of righteousness. To that crowd, nobody was more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus said, if you're not more righteous than them, you're not going to heaven. That was a shocking statement. And the summation of that statement, if you'll remember, is that what God wants is not just an outward righteousness, an outward holiness. He wants an inner holiness. He wants us to be righteous and pure and holy on the inside, just like we are on the outside. And from that point onward in, the, in that sermon... Jesus begins to set these standards of excellence, these standards of moral excellence that not a single one of us can do. That flesh and blood, it's, it's unattainable by flesh and blood. You remember, he forbids an abusive word, a malignant wish, an impure desire, or a vengeful thought. He said things like this, don't just murder, not, don't just not murder, but I say to you that if you're even angry with your brother, you're in danger of judgment. He said it's things like it's not enough that you don't just commit adultery. I'm saying you, you don't even look at a woman with lust in your heart. I mean, just he just kept raising the bar higher and higher and higher. He commands that we love our enemies. We bless those who curse us. We do good to those who hate us. We pray for those who persecute us and despitefully use... I mean, who can do that? He goes on at the end of chapter 5 and he says this, Be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. He just keeps raising the bar, raising the bar. Now listen to me. I know, as well as you know, I hope, that our righteousness is in Him. Correct? 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our righteousness is in him. But listen, he's talking to Christians. Just because our righteousness is in him, he's still saying, this is what I want from you. This is how I want you to act. This is how I want you to think. This is how I want you to behave. And he just raises that bar higher and higher and higher. You remember in chapter 6, we, we get to, uh, he talks about how you practice your righteousness, giving, praying, fasting. And he says, don't do it so other people will pat you on the back. Folks, do you know how hard that is? That's a very simple statement. Do you know how hard it is for a human being not to pray and wonder, I wonder what other people are thinking about me right now? To give, to, to, to serve and not think, wow. And do it for an audience of one. Do you know how hard that is? And then, of course, we get to chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the same judgment you use for other people, that's how you're going to be judged. We've been, listen, we've been in that passage, Matthew 7, 1 through 6. We've been there for four weeks. How many of you have found yourself failing over the last four weeks when it comes to judging other people? My hand's up, and I'm the one teaching it. I mean, I went four weeks, eight, ten, twelve hours a week putting together a lesson, and then I walk out the next day and I find myself judging other people. And I'm, <laughs> what's wrong with me? How can I not do this thing? Listen, if you ignored every other thing that he said prior to Matthew 7, 1, just those two verses, judge not that you be not judged. And with the judgment you use, it'll be ju- you'll be judged. Just those two verses just show us how incapable we are of doing this in our own power. Are you with me? We just can't do it. Listen, can we be honest? Anybody who seriously reads the Sermon on the Mount, seriously reads it, much less tries to obey it, you're going to walk away discouraged. You're going to walk away discouraged. You're just thinking, Jesus, I cannot do this. I I mean, you're talking to Christians, and what's wrong with me? I love you. I believe in you. I'm trying my best to obey you, but I can't do any of those things. Arthur Pink said this, talking about the Sermon on the Mount, Who is sufficient for these things? Such demands of holiness are beyond my feeble strength, yet the Lord has made them. What am I to do? It's like you just want to say, Jesus, how am I supposed to do this? Folks, that's the answer to that question. Ask, and it'll be given you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. Do you really want to be more merciful? Ask. Just ask. Do do you really... Want to be somebody that that serves and gives and prays and fasts for an audience of one? Just ask. Just ask. Those are the good things that all Christians should have. See, he brings us all the way up to this point, and every single one of us should say, how am I going to do this? And there's his answer right there. Ask, and I'll do it for you. Ask, and I'll give it to you. D.A. Carson said this, The Sermon on the Mount lays down the righteousness, the sincerity, the humility, the purity, and the love expected of Jesus' followers. And now it assures them that such gifts are theirs if they will only ask. How many of us 
this week. Ask and ask and ask and ask for temporary things. And we never once ask for mercy or to hunger and thirst after righteousness or to be not hypocritical or to get... Are you with me? How much time did we spend on that? And he's sitting there saying, come to me, ask. Ask for those things and I'll give them to you. The question is, are we asking? My guess is most of us not. Do you see what an incredible promise? It's a guarantee. You ask me for those things. Just ask me. And I guarantee you I'll give it to you. And yet most of us go through life and never ask. We never ask for, for things that he promises that he'll bestow on us. I've got five things with a few minutes that I've got left that I want to talk about on these verses and just some general thoughts. The first is I want you to notice the invitations to pray three times. Ask, seek, knock. Three times we're invited to just come to the Father. I mean, it, it, I don't know how he can make it any clearer, do you? Go back and read those verses. How could he make it any clearer? Just ask and you'll receive for everyone who asks receives. He's, he's inviting us to come. And notice the, the variety of accessibility. Ask, seek, and knock. You know, I read a lot of commentaries. On, and you get all kind of opinions on what's the difference between asking and seeking and knocking. I'll give you one thing I ran across I, I thought was good. I liked it. It said, it was talking about this, this relationship between a child and his father. And it said, if, if a child's father is sitting at his side, like you're both on the couch, and if that child wants something, then he just turns to the father and he just asks, right? Pretty simple. But there are times where the child's father is not right there. Maybe he's somewhere in the house. Or maybe he's somewhere out in the yard and, and the child has to go, if he wants to get something, he has to go find him. He has to go seeking. Or then maybe sometimes the child finds a father uh, out in his shop or he's, he's uh, behind the, the locked door of his study. And if the child wants to get his father's attention, he has to knock. Ask, seek, knock. You see, I think sometimes God is so close, and I, we've all been there. There's times God is so close, I mean, all you got to do is ask. He's right there. But sometimes he's not. Sometimes it seems like he's hidden from us. Sometimes it seems like there, 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 there could even be barriers between him and us. The point seems to be here, look, no matter what, don't stop. Don't stop asking. Come looking for me if you have to. Knock on doors if you have to. But keep going. In fact, it's important. We don't often do this. I don't often talk about the Greek language because you certainly don't have to be a, an expert in Greek to understand the Bible. I'm not. But the Greek language is really a, a, an impressive language. It has so many ways to, uh, to, to do things that the English language doesn't do. And it has something called the, impresent, called the present imperative. And these verbs, ask, seek, and knock, are all in the present imperative, which means what he's saying is keep asking, keep seeking. Keep knocking. Don't just do it one time. You keep coming. You keep asking. You keep seeking. You keep knocking. And he says, I will hear and you will receive. Engage any barriers between you and him 
And the answer is guaranteed to come. I think this, is, this idea of persistence is pretty clear in the companion scripture in Luke 11, where it talks about this same thing. It's, Jesus is telling a parable. He says, which of you has a friend? Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, don't bother me. The door's shut. My children are with me in the bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. And these are the words of Jesus. He says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence or his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needed. So you want to know what the next verse is? Ask and you'll receive. Seek. You'll find, knock, the door will be open. See, he's looking for people that will come after him. I want mercy. I want a hunger and thirst after righteousness. I, I, I want to be all these things that you've laid out. I want all those things. And I won't stop till I find you. You come after him, he'll answer. It's a guarantee. Seven times he promises it will be given to you. You will find. It will be open to you. The asker receives. The seeker finds. The door will be open. Your father will give you good things. Seven times he promises. Just ask. Just ask. I promise you I'll give you good things. Listen, can you not see, at least to me it's obvious, the point here is to encourage us to come. I said earlier, he's not toying with us. He wants to give us good things. He wants to answer. He wants to bestow these things on us. So we should be encouraged to pray and pray often. Number three, again, a word of encouragement. Everybody receives. It's not just some. It's not just a chosen few. It's not just the, the spiritually mature. Now, folks, let's make sure you understand. He's not talking about everyone in the world, right? He's talking about people who can call him Father. And those are only people who believe on his name that he gave the right to call him Father, the right to become children of God. So he's not talking about everybody. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about believers. And the point is that if you are a child of God, you're not excluded from this promise. Everyone receives. All the children can ask. All will be rewarded with good things. You see, he wants to overcome our hesitancy. He doesn't want us thinking, well, I know you'll do it for Pastor Henry, and I know you'll do it for Pastor Bill, and I know you'd do it for... No. no. He said, I'll do it for all of you. Just come. Just ask. Just seek. Just knock. Martin Luther, in his book, The Sermon on the Mount, said this. He knows that we are timid and shy, that we feel unworthy and unfit to present our needs to God. We think that God is so great and we're so tiny that we dare not pray. That's why Christ wants to lure us away from such timid thoughts to remove our doubts and to have us go ahead confidently and boldly. Number four, we are coming to our Father. The word Father, and we covered this a few weeks ago, and I don't want to re-preach it, but the word Father is not a throwaway term for Jesus. It's not something that he uses lightly. It is one of the greatest of all the truths in the Bible that God is our Father. You know, one of the problems I have with the prosperity gospel preachers is every time you listen to them, they're always talking about you're a child of the king. You ever heard that? 
You're a child of the king. You have an inheritance. You need to grab that inheritance. By the way, that's true. But my king is not just a, a king who spoils his children. He is a loving, wise, good father. You can't forget that part. Yes, he's my king, but he is my heavenly father. You see, we foolishly think sometimes... When God brings something unpleasant into our life, we think, well, maybe He's against us. Maybe I'm, I'm out of His favor or something like that. Folks, that is a foolish thought. In fact, that is an impossibility for Him to bring anything into your life that will hurt you. Now, it may be unpleasant, but He will never give you anything that's bad for you in the eternal sense. Never. Because why? Because he says it over. How much more will your heavenly Father only give good things to those who ask him? Let's read it one more time. Which one of you, if his son asked for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, would give him a servant? If you then, as earthly fathers and earthly mothers, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more will your Father who is in heaven Give good things to those who ask Him. Number five, if you hadn't figured it out by now, I literally despise the prosperity gospel. I really do. I, I, I hate to use that word, but I despise it. And there's a lot of reasons for that. In the prosperity gospel, it seems to me that they, use, they teach you to use God to get your will done. You ever notice that? Just believe, just ask in faith, and you can get what you want. Scripture says, no, God uses you to get His will done. It's the exact opposite. It flips it on its head. And when it comes to wealth and what they teach about wealth, ask yourself one question. Who in the world would encourage you to pursue as a goal the very thing the Bible says will ruin your soul? Think about that. What kind of theology would encourage you to pursue as a goal the thing the Bible says will ruin your soul? It's the exact opposite of Christianity. It truly is another gospel. It's what Paul, it's, it's the people that Paul wrote about in Timothy. He says, they are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. I want to close with this. I said up front, that the true, real meaning of this verse is so much greater than what they teach. They're out there, in some sense, teaching that God is some kind of divine genie. But Jesus says, no, He's a loving Father. Now, you ask yourself, which is better? Which is better? If God really was some kind of divine genie, and all I had to do as His child was just ask Him for whatever I want, that sounds pretty cool, <laughs> Until you really think about it. See, the fact is, we don't get everything we ask for. We shouldn't get everything asked for. And we would never want to get everything we ask for. You know why? Because that would make you God. You understand that? You, you basically would be removing God from the role of father. And like a little child, you'd say, give me that chocolate. Give me that money. Give me that car. Give me that healing. You just give it to me. And God just has to give you whatever you want, like a father that doesn't even care about his children. Here, take it. Get out of my sight. Is that what you really want? You want to be in charge of your own life? I don't. 
I've already told you, I, I, I can't even make good decisions for my children who I love. I want to, I hope to, I like to, but I, I'm not, I don't have what it takes. But He does. He does. He is a loving Father, and that's what we need. I need somebody in my life that's wiser than me. I need somebody in my life that's stronger than me. I, I need somebody in, life, in my life that knows more than me, and thank God I do. Thank God I do. He is my loving, heavenly Father. And folks, if you don't see that, how unimaginably wonderful that is, then I don't know, I don't know how to explain it anymore. Ask, he says. Ask for good things, and I'll give them to you. I want to give them to you. But you got to ask. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you. What an incredible, incredible promise you have given to us. And Lord, I ask tonight that as, as your children, as Christians, as born-again believers, God, that somehow drive this home into our heart, that as we go into prayer tonight or tomorrow, that God will remember that, yes, you want us to bring our needs. That you, you want that. You have no problem with that. But, God, can we ask for eternal things? Can we ask for a hunger and thirst for righteousness like we've never had? Can we ask for a mercy in our life for others that we've never had? Can we, can we ask for a, a mind of pure thoughts that we've never had? God, remind us to ask for good, eternal things. And then stand on your promise because you said you will absolutely, absolutely give them to us. Wow, what a, how that would change our families, how that would change our, our, our church, how that would change our community if we lived up to the standards you set for us in the Sermon on the Mount. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word, this incredible, unimaginably wonderful word. And we thank you for what you're going to do through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850-926-1200 or email us at info at rolcrawfordville.com. We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 1030 a.m., in Crawfordville. Please visit us online at rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions.